in chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, as we continue in our fall series looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in, beginning in verse 38, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears by your Spirit, that you would allow us to see and hear things otherwise we could not, that we would change, that we would change in a way that would bring glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what makes Christians different? I want you to think about that question with me this morning. What makes Christians different? Um, when we think about things in and around our world, there might be easy answers to what makes things different. Um, I, I, it might be a surprise to you. I'm thinking about sports. Last week, Penn State came to College Park, and one of the things that makes teams different is their colors, right? Uh, Penn State was in all white. It's very distinguishable from the Maryland black and red and yellow. Uh, this was really important, I think, for Penn State when what appeared to go viral was a picture of students who had painted letters to spell out Terps on their chests and stand there in support of their team, got kind of mixed up and it read strep. I'm sure y'all saw this. Um, interesting enough, one of my daughters did get strep throat the following Monday. That was a little strange. Um, but that's one of those times, and, and I'm not sure it was Maryland's best moment, but that's one of those times when Penn State fans are very thankful for distinguishing colors to know that that's not us. Um, and certainly one of the ways that we know how sports teams uh, are different, among other things, their colors. Uh, unfortunately, Christians, we don't have a uniform. Um, and um, so the question becomes, what makes us different? And I think Jesus gives us insight to that very question in our text this morning, as he has sort of been doing all along. And what I submit to you that he's saying is that what makes Christians different at its most basic level is, is how we love. It's, it's the way we love, and it's who we love, actually, he's going to show us that makes us different. 
Just to kind of summarize where we've been, uh, Jesus started in 21, verse 21 saying that he has come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And uh, from that point on, all the way to our text this morning, he's been giving the examples of how uh, people in his day have either taken the law, whether it be moral, uh, being part of the, the Ten Commandments, or even civil, and distorted it, or misused it, or misinterpreted it for their own gain and their own benefits. And in so doing, uh, being able to say to themselves that I'm righteous, I'm fulfilling the law. And Jesus' point here, after going through all these things, is one, no, you, you aren't keeping the law, and in fact, you're far from it. In fact, you're not righteous, and you need a righteousness apart from yourself. And we have been saying all along that part of Jesus' uh, method here is to take the law and let it crush us. So that when it crushes us, right, we might not, not, not run to ourselves to try to fix it, but we might run where? To him. That we may hunger and thirst for a righteousness that can only come from him. But there's been something else that's happening, and I think you've picked up on it as we've gone in this series, is that Jesus doesn't sort of leave us there. He doesn't sort of expose the ways that we've been misusing the law or the ways that we're not fulfilling it and just sort of say, okay, good, you ran to righteousness, you're good. No, he actually gives us ways then for how to live that out, which is to say how to live the law out because the law matters. And now that our relationship has changed to the law because of Jesus, uh, we can now see the law as beautiful and not condemning. And so we can go and we can live out of obedience to, to Christ. We can live as, as people, as a part of his kingdom, actually, is what, the, what he's doing. We can live in a way so as to reflect the king. And if he's sort of shifted, you know, gradually that's become more clear as he's moved through this section here, it's, it's very clear, clear where he leaves us. In that saying that as we look at these new ways that people are distorting the law, what's becoming clear for Jesus is, is this is now how you're to live. This is now how you're to love. And this is really the most important thing. Because this is what's going to make you different. And I want to look at that this morning. That's the only thing I want to look at. And in two ways, I want us to see the way Christians love that Jesus is calling us to love and, and who Jesus is calling us to love in this text. So let's look at that first one, uh, the way Christians love. This is going to be looking at verses 38 to 42. If you look there in verse 38, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and this is that kind of, you know, we should be familiar with this formula at this point, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one or the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus, as he has been doing, has been quoting the Old Testament law. And at times, right, he's quoted the moral law, as we said, but, but often he'll also go to civil law. Well, Leviticus 24.20 is what he quotes here. Um, but in this example, people are not sort of adding to it or changing the law. This is what it says if you go and look it up. Instead, they are misusing this part of the law for their own benefit. They are using this law to justify, you might say, self-afflicted vengeance upon another. For example, if someone comes into my house and steals something, I have the right then to take matters into my own hand and bring justice to that situation, i.e., eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But that is actually not the intention of the law which Jesus is drawing attention to. And we need to understand this before we know what he's trying to say. So first, this is a civil law 
which first and foremost was put in place to what? To protect the accused. Let me say that again. This is a civil law that was put into place to protect the accused, the victimizer. Its purpose is to stop excessive retaliation upon the victim. If one sister, just spitballing here, goes into the other sister's room and steals their favorite shirt, here's what happens next once the offended party figures that out. They then take matters into their own hands and go into the first sister's room and steal five shirts and two pairs of shoes, and it's all justified because that was my favorite shirt. And you often would hear something like, well, she did it first, right? The law is saying to the offended party, no, 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 no. First of all, you can't take justice into your own hands. This is a civil law. (laughs) Uh, Second, what it would be doing is, is just taking a shirt for a shirt, not five shirts and two shoes. Because what happens in those moments when you as the victim, right, have been wronged, right? You've been shamed or, or something's been t- violated of sorts, right? You, you, you want justice, but you want justice according to what you think will make this right. And to go back to a more simple example, if it's your favorite shirt that she took, well, that just ups the ante. And would you, ha- would you know that God knows that about us? And so this law actually is there to prohibit that, to prohibit you from going in and, and, and exercising excessive judgment because you feel like this is what makes things right. This is the first thing. This law was put into place to protect the accused. Second, though, this civil law is just that. It's civil. And this is probably the hardest part for us as Westerners. As Westerners, we individualize this command and we think that it gives us individuals the right to exercise judgment eye for an eye as we see fit whenever we choose. We think that an eye for an eye says that what, if we go back to the sister analogy, that we can take it upon ourselves to go in there and and, and bring justice to her wardrobe. But it doesn't. Again, this is civil law, which meant that for Israel, those judgments, what, they come down by the state, not the individual. To the individual, what does God say? Vengeance is mine. And in case we weren't sure if that was still the case, Paul doubles down in Romans 12, 19, says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? So what should Christians do? Well, you're not going to like this. I didn't like this. Verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay? So since we we understand the purpose of this law, now Jesus moves then into ways that we now live that law out. And here he's saying, don't resist this evil person. As a matter of fact, give them your other cheek. Now, what is he saying here? Because there's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a cultural lens here that's keeping us from understanding this. I think it's important to start with, this is not somebody hitting you. It's in a fight or an attack and you are trying to defend yourself. That is, that is not in view here. This is, this is uh, more of an insult. 
Right? When somebody insults you, when someone dishonors you, right? And so it's a slap, and actually you get into it, it's a right slap, right? Somebody's back, back of somebody's right hand coming across their right cheek. And when that happened in this culture in this day and age, it was specifically done to insult and bring dishonor to you and to your family. And what Jesus is actually calling his people to, what they would be hearing is, do not defend your honor. Do not attempt to save face. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other. Second, though, Jesus says in verse 40, if anyone would sue you right, and take your tunic, you should let him have your cloak as well. This is also a matter of humiliation or shame. For somebody to go sue you and maybe even uh, accuse you of doing something you didn't do, nothing makes me more angry when that happens. I imagine you're probably the same. And so then to sue somebody would be also to dishonor them. So again, we're in the, 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 the area of, of honor, specifically when we think about the, the culture of wearing a tunic and a cloak. Um, you could say in this world that the tunic was a, a, a sort of sacrosanct in the sense that, you know, if, if you didn't have anything else, or if you were homeless or didn't have a place to sleep that night or whatever, you had this to keep you warm. Right? It was your shelter. And so to take it would be, um, would be insulting at the very least. It'd be dehumanizing. But we can kind of pick up at this point that Jesus is sort of using hyperbole a little bit here because he's not suggesting that we go around, obviously, uh, naked, giving our clothes to people. He's wanting them to get into the heart of the matter about what drives you to stand up for yourself and for your own rights. Because if that's what's primary in your life, is what he's saying to his followers, right, you will never be different from those around you. And you certainly won't be different in the way that you love. Because you will spend the rest of your, your efforts, your life, defending not the honor, as it were, of the kingdom uh, of following Jesus, right? but defending your own life, defending your own honor, defending your own reputation. He gives one more in case we were not sure where he was going with this. Verse 41, though, and if, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, most of you or some of you know that this is uh, getting into Roman army issues. The Roman army, which occupied uh, the area at the time, had the right to force people to assist them in their travels and in their marching. They could actually, by law, force anybody to have them carry their equipment. Um, now, they were uh, only supposed to do that for a thousand paces or roughly a mile. But you can imagine that that maybe wasn't always the case, that that, that that was abused, right? But what's, <clears throat> what's in view here for Jesus? How, how humiliating would it be for you to be forced to have to carry the very equipment of the army of the nation that was oppressing you? See, it comes back to shame. It comes back to honor. It comes back to standing up for yourself and defending your rights. And Jesus is saying, go another mile with them. Give them your other cheek. Don't just give them what they ask for, double down. Give them what is, what is most valuable to you. 
In other words, do it voluntarily. And this is what's interesting when this happens, when we begin to enter into the way that Christ is calling his people to love, something begins to happen. And you can even see it better as he brings up that, that illustration of going the extra mile with that Roman soldier is that as you do this, you begin to show them that you what? You, you belong to a different empire. And the way that you love shows people that you, you serve a different emperor. And as Sinclair Ferguson writes, that is with principles that are infinitely stronger than the laws of Rome. This is the way you will love, as Jesus is saying. Because when you do, it will not only be what makes you different, but it will reflect the way that your Father in heaven loves, which is generously, graciously, and at great expense to himself. So what makes people in Jesus' kingdom different? It's the way we love. It's the way that you love, or at least the way that you have the ability to love. It's, it's this posture of generosity with all of life. And that's really what Jesus is calling his people here too, is to be generous. And we tend to associate that uh, with our money. He's talking about being generous with all of your life, everything. A posture of generosity that can only be present if your personal rights though, and your reputation and your honor are not what primary. Someone else's is. Well, how do we do this? Just to kind of flesh out this first point, by resting in the Father's opinion of you in Christ. Jesus is saying, I'm going to fulfill the law on your behalf, as we have said over and over. I'm going to give you the righteousness you need. You're going to hunger and thirst for this, and I'm going to give it to you. You're going to be in right relationship with the Father. You will have access to the Father, and not just access, you will be his, what, treasured possession. You will have his favor. Listen to this. You will have his smile upon you. And when you have that, when you know that you have that turning the other cheek, being generous with your life, what it, 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 for lack of a better phrase, it's really not a big deal. But again, this can only happen if we are willing to, to forfeit the desire to fight for our own honor and reputation, and I would even put it in these terms for Westerners, to dial back your, your personal rights. Because what Jesus calls us to in this kingdom, especially as Christians, and you've heard me say this over and over, is, is we don't have rights as Christians. We are denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and we are following him. Christians have this unlimited power, though, in knowing and valuing, uh, uh, of understanding the value of themselves when they know that they are loved by God and how much they are loved by God. That's Jesus' point. He's saying, let that be enough. Let that win the day. Uh, do you know that about yourself? Do you know about that unlimited amount of uh, that, that wellspring that never runs dry that you are able to pull from because of you are so clear about the Father's love for you because of Jesus. That's his point. And when, when that is the, the order, right, of our, of our desires, when we know that that is not only primary, not my own rights, when I know that, that the gospel, 
reminds me that this is true, that Jesus loves me, and because Jesus has loved me, the, fa- the Father and I are, 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 are <laughs> we're, we're good. Then you've got something to pull from to love people in a way that will make you different than anybody else that you live with. And that's, that's what Christians are called to. Okay? All right. I wish this was the easy one, but we're going to move on to the next one. It's, it's, it gets, it's more difficult. Thank you, Jesus. This is the way we're to love, though, and this is what's going to make you different. And the way that you love is graciously, which means you love generously, which means you, really, you love sacrificially. All right, what's the next one? It's who. Who you love. And who we as Christians love is not limited, as you noted, to family. It's not limited to friends. It's not even limited to strangers. It's not even limited to people who treat you kindly. Who you love extends to your enemies. You go back to verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, here Jesus is actually quoting from Leviticus 19, which does say love your neighbor. But what Leviticus 19 does not say is hate your enemy. Now, why is this here? Well, as we've seen, this is where people have added to and right distorted the law of God to fit their own needs. And, and, and the way that they're doing this here is uh, this is a way to sort of justify your anger towards somebody you might not like. As with any command, the opposite is often true. And so it's not a stretch for people to think, well, if God has commanded me to love my neighbor, then the opposite must be true. And, and, and the opposite of loving my neighbor is what? Hating my enemy. So it's okay for me to do that. And this is what they were doing to this law. But as we just got done seeing, right, the law to love your neighbor, just like an eye for an eye, wasn't to justify vengeance. You didn't like what somebody was doing, but to restrain your hatred towards others. The reason someone would spin the law like this, right, love your neighbor but hate your enemy, is to justify their own vengeance towards anyone they deemed their enemy and who wasn't their neighbor. And that's a very convenient law to have. Because it nowhere draws the line as to who is my neighbor which we know as New Testament readers, that's a big question when you get to the New Testament. And we can think about Luke 10 when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? And he gives us uh, that familiar parable of what? The Good Samaritan. And if we run all the way out to the end of that, that parable, one of the things that we learn about who our neighbor is is it's actually anyone. Could be friend, could be family, could also be your enemy. Especially in this case, as Jesus uses the Samaritan, which the Samaritans and the Jews had very uh, hostile relationship towards one another. It's very intentional that he's using that as an example. But what is he pointing out to them? He's saying, look, your neighbor is anyone who's in need. Loving your neighbor in no way means hating those who are not your neighbor. Rather, love of neighbor is designed to soften you towards others that you might even hate wants to soften your heart towards those who anger you. It wants, to, it wants to soften your heart towards those who hurt you. In fact, Jesus says to not only love your enemies, but he goes further to pray for them so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And that's just as saying that you will reflect his likeness. It is almost impossible, and you've done this, you know, to go on hating someone if you are praying for them. Have you ever tried that? Right? Like I've tried a lot of like, I don't want this person to enter my brain. 
I'm so mad at them. But when I begin to pray for my enemies, whoever that might be, it's impossible to keep that hate there. It really is. And some of the reason for that is as we pray, right, we stop demonizing people. We stop uh, thinking the worst of them, and we start actually wishing they're good, which is what C.S. Lewis actually writes about this very topic. He says we must try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves, to wish that he were not bad, to hope that he may, in this world or another, be cured. In fact, it's to wish his good. That is what is meant in the Bible by loving him, wishing his good. And I admit that this means loving people, he says, who have nothing lovable about them. Perhaps, he says, it makes it easier if we remember, though, that that is how God loves us. This is who Christians are to love. It's their enemies. What happens when we love our enemies, right? Let's just think about this. We talk about reflecting the Father's likeness. If the way that we are to love others is graciously, as we just talked about that first point, generously, right? Which means that we are are being more generous with with our life and, and giving our lives away because we are pulling from this wellspring of love that we have uh, in Christ. Then who we love is actually designed to what stretch us. It's to stretch our generosity. And what happens when you see somebody's generosity being stretched, it magnifies grace. And that is what it means to live out the Father's likeness. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have, right? So he's saying you're not being stretched. You're just going to love the people who love you. I'm pretty sure it was John Cox last week who mentioned that, you know, that's one of the problems churches can have. We can feel like a friendly church. Wallace can feel like a friendly church. And that's primarily because those that are in the church are kind to those who are in the church, right? I haven't been yelled at today. Y'all are pretty friendly. Uh, well, I'll wait till after the sermon, but for the most part right now, you guys are pretty friendly. But outsiders might think of this as like not a friendly church. And it's not that you're not friendly. It's just that we don't tend to necessarily think about extending kindness to those we don't know. To the stranger, to the enemy. So we can feel like we're in a space where this is a kind, loving place, but we're just being loving to those who are loving back. Jesus is really stretching us. What reward is it for you to love those who love you back? He continues, do not even the tax collectors do the same. Ouch. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Man. Well, it's one thing to be generous to those who are generous to you. It's another thing to be generous to those who you don't know. But it's a completely different thing to be generous in all manner to those who are your enemies. To wish them good. To pray for them. That stretches us, right? And, and, and can we even ask, can my generosity even extend in that direction? But what else is happening in that moment? As we said, when our generosity is stretched, grace is magnified and it's often happening without us even knowing. And that is, friends, reflecting the Father's likeness. Uh, when I was in college, I volunteered with a youth group at the church I attended in one of our trips for spring break. Um, to take these kids to spring, on a spring break trip was to this place called the, the Duvall Home. And I probably have mentioned this before. I, I don't remember in what, what uh, context, but uh, it wasn't this context I'm about to share with you. But the, the Duvall Home, 
uh, still exists. It's, it's, it's a, it offers exceptional care for individuals with special needs, including Down syndrome and autism and cerebral palsy and many other disabilities. Um, most of the people when, you know, that, that, that there, when, you know, when you go visit, they're, they're primarily committed to wheelchairs. Um, very few have motor skills. Very few have cognitive abilities to talk. Uh, and there were always uncomfortable shouts and screams because the residents just couldn't control themselves. Uh, to put it mildly, when I think about an experience that stretched me, but of course stretched those I was with, it was going to visit this, this home and to spend our spring break there for the week. Uh, many of our youth had breakdowns early on, tears. Some had to limit the amount of time they could spend in this place. They'd just do a couple hours can't stay here all day. Many grew frustrated because it was so hard to communicate. Can't really have conversation with a lot of the people that are there. And this just sort of forced people to this corner of what's the point of this? Maybe not so much what's the point of our trip, but why would God do this? And this, this immediate leveling by the end of the week, though, adjustments were made, and our group had made friends with these residents, but not without being stretched. Who we love is meant to stretch us, what one of the counselors said, because when that happens, what? Grace is magnified. And, you know, we're not saying this to ourselves or experiencing this while we're there, but this is what happens when you go home and you hear about everybody else's spring break trip at the beach and what they did, and you have high school students having to tell them, yeah, I went to this place called Duval Home. I couldn't even have a conversation with anybody. It was so uncomfortable. I wanted to leave. I was being stretched to where somebody would look and say, well, why would you do that? I think it has something to do with the way Jesus has loved me. And there, grace is magnified. This is what it means to reflect the likeness of the Father. This is behind Jesus' intentions of how and, and who we are to love because this is what makes the church different. Well, what's going to do this for us? Let's land the plane here. Jesus has given us two, two commands. He's given us a way to love. He's given us who to love. And how are we going to do this? Well, the answer is by running to the one who was stretched for us. By running to the cross. See, by being full. It's by being full. It's by being complete. It, it's not wanting anything. It's going back to that wellspring that we have because we, we have the Father smile upon us because of Christ. Let me draw your attention to what might be the verse that, that's standing out the most in all of this is verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, the word for perfect here is telos, and, and that has several meanings, but the, the, I'll give you a couple. It, it really means be, something to be brought to the end. Right, the end, right, the completeness would be another definition for it. Uh, not wanting anything would be a definition for telos, which is why your translation reads perfect. 
Paul uses this word several times in, in his epistles. Colossians 1.28 will read this. For He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He, uses, he translates that word telos, mature in Christ. So it has this sense of, of moving towards this end. James 1.4, though, I think has the better. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. He sort of throws them all in there. And I think I, I labor here a little bit because we can read that verse and we can get hung up on the perfect part of it, that, that it is my job then to uh, come back to this righteousness question. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. Another interesting fact here about this word, just for you, um, you, you Greek scholars, is that it's in the future tense. which makes this even more complicated. So it kind of says, like, you, you shall be or will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Sort of like how Jesus has been saying, right, those who mourn will be comforted. What's Jesus doing here? Well, he's given us a little bit of both and, right? There is a day that's coming when you will be perfect, when you will be complete, when you will be full. But you're also kind of experiencing that now. And it's an interesting summary for Jesus as he rounds out these last two um, uh, you know, commands, as they were, to say, essentially, be full as your Father in heaven is full. Be complete as your Father in heaven is complete. Be wanting nothing as your Father in heaven wants nothing, because that is the only way that you will love, both the way that we're to love and who, is if you have that. And so one of the questions that comes out of this is, is do, you, do you have that? Do you know that? Is that the wellspring you're pulling from here? Do you, have you met Jesus, right? And have you seen uh, through, through his blood the approval of the Father's face finally upon you? Is that a real thing for you? But it also means that we ought to be making some type of progression in our life as we move towards this completeness, as we move towards this perfection, as we are being full. And I think this begs the question, first and foremost, as we look at, you know, what does it mean for us to grow in this area to, to, in, in the way that Jesus calls us to love, both graciously and generously, and who he calls us to love, is that there should be growth in that over the years. And I think it's worth us just for application to ask, who's that person, right? Who's that group for you that, that, that you hate, how are you putting yourself in places where you are being stretched by who Jesus is calling you to love? Who is your enemy this morning? Are you praying for them? How are you denying yourself, denying your reputation, your honor, your rights for the sake of Jesus' call in your life to turn the other cheek in the places where you feel humiliated, in the places where you feel dishonored? Is the posture of your life one of generosity or is it personal justice for all the things and ways that you've been wronged? Is there growth here? And who have you let in that could vouch for that? Leon Morris writes, no matter how far along the path of Christian service we are, there is always something to be strived for. Nevertheless, there can be and should be progress. I agree with that. So we got to talk about progress in this room. 
But where does progress come from? It comes from being full. And how are we filled? How do we let steadfastness, as James say, have its full effect? It's by looking at the cross. It's coming back to Jesus over and over, seeing Jesus, what stretched not for a friend, not for family, but for an enemy. For you, for me. That's the only thing that can make you full, complete, lacking in nothing. It's seeing Jesus in the way that he loves, not defending his honor, not defending his reputation at one point, but living solely for what the will of the Father. It's seeing Jesus and who he loves, right? Those who spit on him and those who nailed him to a cross, all while crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's how you get full. That's where your completeness comes from. That is the wellspring in which we move out into this world to love the way Jesus is calling us to love and to love who Jesus is calling us to love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you for how uncomfortable this should make us feel. We thank you for the ways that you're calling us to be stretched. That our love would reflect the love of our Heavenly Father and his generosity and his graciousness and his giving himself away. But I pray that we would not miss the engine of this. That the heart of this is knowing that that this is how we have been loved and how we are continued to be loved by Jesus. So would you show us that cross? Would you show us that, 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 that he went to it while we were his enemies? And would that change us? Would that change be real in our lives? Would it bring forth fruits of repentance and fruits of of, of generosity and graciousness towards those around us? Would it, would it maybe be, be first and foremost to start with ourselves, forgiving ourselves, that we can begin to see those in front of us, begin to be stretched and move in the direction to love in the way that Jesus loves, that we may be different for no other reason than to bring glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.